Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. I am John Epperson, and today on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. Hey, now. And for our guest today, we have Trey Robrock, I believe, is what has how you said to pronounce that. Yes, it is. Hey, everyone. Awesome. I didn't butcher that. Is, is what that means, right? That is correct. Okay, <laughs> cool. So, Trey, would you just like maybe introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us who you are and like maybe how or why we might know you. Sure. Yeah. It was on a long time ago on your podcast, 2017. Actually, go back and listen to it before this because I couldn't remember for the life of me what I talked about. Let's see. I've done a couple of companies. One that I was on previously for was a company called Greenbits, which did uh, point of sale in the cannabis space. It's always an interesting topic. Since then, I've left there. We actually sold that company. I've gone through a real estate journey and I'm back back into Rails after a voyage through many other things. Always talking about personal finance and all kinds of other things. By real estate journey, do you mean writing code for real estate or just buying stuff? Well, you know, it started by buying stuff and then I found out that I had problems with it. So I ended up building tech and now I'm thinking of reducing the amount of real estate I have and just focusing on the tech side. <laughs> nice. The journey back. Yeah. Journey back. Nice. Well, I mean, one of the things that you you said, like prior to hopping on the show, that like, I mean, immediately piqued my interest was the fact that like the stock that you were lo- using, like right before you left Rails, including like included like a lot of spa stuff, and you kind of more or less like left Rails, tried out a bunch of stuff, and you're now back. And I know I, for one, am super interested in hearing about that journey and and how and why you did it. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I've been I've been in Rails my entire entire career my first job out of college was in full rails back in uh when i was building bookkeeping software so at Greenbits, we had a uh we had a rails api and this was like probably a couple years after the like the single page apps really became like a big big thing so we we ended up going with ember js we had a couple of native ios apps as well at that company so the Rails API kind of made a little bit of sense there. And of course, we thought the single page app because, you know, performance is better single page apps because you don't have different page loads and all that stuff. So we did that there. It, it worked reasonably well, but it was complicated. You know, you ended up to make a, build a single feature. You ended up having to change like seven different projects. It felt like sometimes you actually did have to change seven different projects. Um, you had gems and the API and then the front end and deployments were a lot more difficult to coordinate. So I, I had mixed mixed experiences there. When I left Greenbits, well, I was in a, a bit of a weird place personally. I was kind of burnt out. You know, it was like seven years of CTO of my first startup, and it was exhausting. So I was kind of looking at a bunch of other things. I spent a lot of time playing around with Lambda and Node. It was right in the early-ish days of, of Lambda. I actually ended up taking a job at GoDaddy after that, where I did a bunch of crazy like Chrome driver stuff on Lambda, which was horribly awful to work on. Um, everything was just way harder than it should have been. I also did a lot of Python. I was kind of interested in not machine learning type stuff, but more like big data type things. Did a bunch of data processing for my friends' companies who basically sells marketing lists. So they're processing, you know, terabytes of data and Python seemed like a good way to go. So I kind of went through this journey of doing a lot of Node, a lot of Python, playing around with a couple of other things here and there. And then I just realized it's just so much easier to build stuff in Rails. You know, I've never been like the computer scientist type where like I I don't nerd out about the low level stuff at all. I just kind of gloss over once we start getting to that level. So I've always liked Rails because it just made getting stuff in front of customers really fast. And then all of this was kind of coming around the times of like Rails 7 with the new Hotwire stuff, 
all the new stimulus stuff. And that just kind of really changed what you could do with just native rails. And so that's where I am now. And I honestly don't think I'm going to go back. Nice. Nice. So, I mean, what is it about it that that's so awesome? It kind of sounds like simplicity is a thing that you value, you know, like speed, I guess, productivity. Those, are, those are the things that I was hearing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the whole Rails Rails doctrine like speaks very closely with how I like to to build things. I think the the like pleasantness and ease of writing code is really really important. Both me and my co-founder on the current project we're working on, we're just both really happy working in the environment. You know, we go work on some other projects and then come back and we're like, this just feels good. It's almost like stepping out of like a, a busy intersection into like a spa. <laughs> it's just like a relaxing feeling. And I think that's that's an important for the developer experience. And I think because all the pieces are kind of in one place, one person can do a lot more. You know, at Greenbits, we had iOS developers, we had Ember.js developers, we had Rails developers. So to do one feature, you had like a minimum of three people. There were very few people that could code across the entire thing really effectively. Whereas doing full Rails, you need to know some JavaScript. You don't even need all that much for most apps. You need to know Rails. And then we're using Render for our deployment now too. So we've moved off of AWS even. So it's just Rails. And it's just simple. We can ship stuff quickly. And it's just pleasant. Okay. Well, we'll... We'll have to ask you about render too, because because yeah. we were talking about that like I don't know, like a month or two ago, and oh nice, definitely interested. Okay, yeah, I mean, you're definitely speaking like my language in a lot of ways. I feel <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I, I mean, when stimulus came out, like so for for people that like maybe didn't weren't paying attention at the time or whatever, but like stimulus kind of came out like before Hotwire did, and Hotwire like one of the things that makes up Hotwire is stimulus, so. It like it can operate, it can still operate independently or whatever. And I've been using it yeah. on a few apps for like a couple of years now. And I feel like uh, for me, like Stimulus and Alpine, like kind of came out of roughly around the same time. It's too close for me to like really understand the difference. And like for me, like they both proved to me that like the thing that I wanted when spas were coming out, like could actually happen. Like, yeah, I, I mean, so for me, my journey, right? Like, so I was working on some app when spas came out and like ever, you know, it was like the everybody's doing it thing, right? Like backbone made like, it, it sort of like proved that there was like, you know, some functionality mm -hmm. that we could get, right. That we didn't have. And then, and then like all of these things like kicked off or whatever. But like, I felt like the promise was that I was going to give up jQuery and I was basically going to get these widgets that I could just like go plug in on any page. Right. And I was going to deduplicate a lot of my JavaScript code and not have to write as much of it. And instead, what I got was, hey, I'm going to have to write a whole lot more JavaScript than I ever did before. <laughs> and and like, I, so for me, like, I felt like the promise was broken. And so, yeah. And, and in the at the end of the day, like, yeah, I kind of felt like the same. Like, it was like very complicated. It was hard to get to work together. And yeah, like Stimulus's philosophy that all of our state it's just going to be stored in the DOM. Like it seems like so simple, and it seems like like it doesn't make that much of a difference. But it actually, completely revolutionizes the way that you do JavaScript entirely. And now I'm using JavaScript for what it's like really good at, which is like, hey, an event happened, let me react to it and do some stuff, and then quit. Yeah, exactly. I think I've, you know I've seen stimulus use both good and bad ways, but I think in the good ways, it it lands exactly kind of where you're describing. Like I can build out 
components that sort of extend the functionality of the app already. You know, I, when I'm building it, I generally try and make sure it works in just Rails without JavaScript. In most cases, some cases it's not possible, like a chat app, for example. And when it can, it just extends the functionality and makes the experience a little bit better. But yeah, it's, it's so pleasant being able to just pull components out of one project and drop it right into the other project. It's what, like you were describing, I was hoping to have with like React, but then when you're in React, you're writing so much more code and half of it I didn't even understand. It just seemed obnoxious the amount of code I was writing with the features I, were bu- I was building. So I'm curious about kind of how that affects the business side of things, right? Like you're, you're able to deliver more from a smaller feature set that you're because you're able to ship more quickly. Like what other parts of the business side has like adopt coming back to Rails like adopted that maybe you had forgotten about in your Python or Lambda days mm-hmm. <laughs> that you've been able to apply or take advantage of because of the ecosystem you're using. Yeah. So uh, like back at GreenBits, we actually talked about moving from the SPA to full Rails. And I was actually opposed to it at the time. Huge mistake, massive regret there. And I think that, that would have helped a lot. What I, f- what I find when we're working in like a full just Rails product development team there's significantly more focus on the customer problem and like higher level problem solving for the customer versus software engineering stuff. You know, I find when you're when you're in Python, when you're in Node, when you're like on the quote unquote backend API, you're spending a lot more time on like computer science type discussions versus solving problems for the customer. For me, when I'm running an engineering team, I, I'm not very good at dictating tiny little details. I'd like to give you a big problem and then you go solve the problem. And I find you get a lot more of that in the in like the full Rails world, at least from my experience. And I think that that can really help the business, help the product and engineering be a lot more connected with the actual business and the customer and just speed things along generally. Yeah, that's always been one hard part of being a developer in general, right? It's like trying to understand the business. And I definitely connect more to the customer that you're building the software for using Rails than say like, I don't know, <laughs> my past ex- prior experience was like Joomla, PHP style, mm-hmm. you know, content management, like, you know, getting rid of all the software problems and just saying, okay, here's like a WordPress style thing and, you know, let your cu- customize it for your customer, right? <laughs> like, yeah, uh, <laughs> which is kind of the alternative still, right? Like, we have all these third-party services that do similar things with less configuration upfront or customization. Like you can hook in payments with Stripe or something like that and mm-hmm. copy-paste code to get your payment pipeline in, right? But I definitely see that, you know, it's it's easier to like make sense of in the Rails ecosystem that connection of all these custom things that you're building that you can't just buy from a third-party service, right? Like, and uh, I don't know, to me, it seemed easier to make that parallel using Rails. But I don't know, (laughs) some parts of it are still like, uh, it's still hard to, like naming things is hard as an example, (laughs) right? And so like, so as a business person, like, how do you solve that problem, right? Like, how do you like, (laughs) how do you focus on the right naming? And or do you just like not worry about that at all? Yeah, I, I think that sort of stuff, it really depends on on who the business people are. Right. I've had I've had the advantage of my current company and my last company. I am also the business people. So it's a lot easier. Uh, me, me and my co-founder, he also helped co-found the last company. We're we find it very important to use the same language in every department. So we use the same language in marketing. We use the same language in engineering. We use the same language in engin- in uh, in business as well. 
sometimes that causes issues on the engineering side. For example, right now we're working on a on an application flow. So our model is called application inside of a Rails application. And it's getting a little confusing. Um, so you run into some issues there, but I, you pointed out naming. And I, I do think that's really important. I've seen that cause issues with teams a lot in the past, where engineering calls it this thing, design calls it this other thing, business calls it this other thing. But they're all talking about the same thing, but they're still arguing because they call it different things. So again, like I think Rails gives us the ability to get closer to the customer on the engineering side. And then it, as business gets closer to the customer on the business side, we can kind of all be in the same place. So what what are you doing currently for the application specifically, right? Because I know that I personally had that happen to me one time. Oh. Right now, we're working through it. So the biggest issues we've had so far is the fact that there's the application view folder that you typically use for like shared partials and things like that and like auto completing a file name. So if we're going to like application show, uh, it always pulls up applications and then all the shared partials first. One idea we have for that is just to rename the application view directory and not use that that nomenclature because it doesn't actually matter so much because we prefix all the shared partials anytime we use them anyways. That's been the, really the only place that's caused a lot of issues so far. And it's really just more confusion on the development side, which I think is really important to get rid of. So we probably will. We kind of expected more issues with like the Rails application and this being called application, but that didn't end up causing any issues. We're a little bit scarred from like a past experience on a previous financial product we worked on. We had a model that we wanted to call transaction and you definitely don't want to call a model transaction. That doesn't work. <laughs> so yeah. we haven't had as many issues as I expected. And that's that's something we also try and do is we we try and just try it and see what issues we have rather than trying to predict what issues we have because most of the time we're wrong. I think that, I think that's interesting. I definitely, I mean, I actually still take care of an app that has a transaction model and um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't I've, remember all the things that make it work, but um, there are a few things, but... Yeah, I've not gotten to get away from financial transactions ever. I started my career in small business bookkeeping software and then I transitioned into point of sale software. And then I thought I was finally out of software and into real estate. And now I'm building real estate software that also tracks financial transactions. So I've gotten really good at financial transactions, but my co-founder is always like, can we stop doing financial products already? I mean, I definitely feel like at the moment, at this exact moment, we're just talking about that small subset of things where you're the best name that you can use for something conflicts with a word that you need for, yep. for Rails, but which most things don't, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty rare. Yeah, I would say my most difficult problem is like contextual naming, right? Where things mean something else as soon as you move it somewhere else. <laughs> so as an example, like message, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like if you're working in the context of like an inbox or something, yep. you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. But, you know, if you start looking at it from a higher level service layer, it's, it's a different thing. <laughs> and you start to slowly like, you know, conflate the naming. I still have yet to find a good solution for that. <laughs> outside of just namespacing, right? But it's still when you have to mix the two, I don't know, mm -hmm. there's still, there's not a good solution for that. Yeah, for stuff like that, so in our in our new product, we have a conversation, which is sort of a general concept. You can have regular conversations or you can have maintenance items that also have a conversation or an application that also has a conversation. Um, so for those things, we've started using delegated types. So we delegate the type to maintenance to just general for a general conversation and then to application. Um, that's been working relatively well for us so far. Nice. Yeah, it's definitely 
I mean, shoot, I'm literally at RubyConf at the moment, right? Mm -hmm. And like, these are the kinds of conversations that I have with people because I'm just like, well, what are you doing for this thing? Like, and it's not, it's not about like judgment. It's like, well, what reasons did you make that call? Because I chose not to use that particular thing for these reasons. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's fun and interesting and, and very edifying, right? To explore that and, and just like level yourself up and just be like, oh yeah, maybe, maybe it could have worked for me. And maybe the next time I'll try that or something. Yeah. Yeah. And Rails has so many tools you can use in so many different ways to solve so many different problems. There's normally like a better way, like a more, more convention way of doing it. But I mean, there's like, they like to say pretty sharp knives in there. And I've explored quite a few of those. <laughs> yeah. I always tell people like, you generally want to, you know, you're, you're a locomotive or a train on a track, right? Like you want to stay on the rails as much as possible because every time you go off, you have to maintain and build all that yourself. Yeah. Uh, so. so so being so close to the business and on this topic, uh, what's something that you've like made a decision on or built and, and then like later it's just been like, oh, this would have been way better if I had done it differently for the business. <laughs> so something that would have been better for the business had I done it differently? Yeah, like because there are so many sharp far. knives, that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a big thing at GreenBits was going to like a, a service style layer too fast it was we were starting a company like right in the peak of services being a big deal and you know everyone likes to jump on the bandwagon of facebook's doing it google's doing it it must work really well but the thing is I'm, we were a really small startup we're not google we're not facebook and i think like that built in a lot of complexity which required us to hire far more than we needed to and then things broke in different ways than we expected Versus had we just built that all into a big monolithic Rails app, which me and my co-founders had ran before and knew how to operate before. You know, it's like trying the new thing too early and for unknown reasons. I think that that was probably maybe one of the biggest technical regrets that I have at that company was going that far, that direction when we started, rather than just starting with what I know. I feel you on that one. I've actually been somewhere that, that I felt did that before and we parted ways. It was... It was I mean, it was, wasn't like the only thing, but it was, it was a major factor. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to back off of like back off of that. I find it, at least for me, it's, it tends to be easier to split out a service or split out a gem or split out a library than it is to merge one in. So by splitting it out so early, like, you know, we, we did this almost at the start and then we scaled up to like, you know, processing billions of dollars of financial transactions a day. You don't even know where the boundaries are really when you're first starting. So I think it's just better to, to kind of throw it all together and then split it out later rather than trying to merge it back in. It's kind of how I approach concerns and rails too. put it all in the model and then split it out rather than the other way around. Every time I've done it the other way around, I have to refactor it because I did it wrong. Do you have any do you have any other like rules regarding that? Like you, you, even if they're just like personal, just kind of curious. Well, for example, sorry, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe I'll throw something. So you yeah, I'm trying to say like personally. I don't break things out until I've done it twice. Like that's like just like a personal rule. Like need to do it a minimum of twice. That way I've seen it at least twice. And it's better if you can wait till like the third time, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't I don't like to extract or genericize, you know, until like at least twice. Yeah, I I mean I agree with that. I probably have a pretty similar strategy, though probably less quantitative. It's more like once I just get annoyed enough with it, I'll I'll extract it. You know, it's one of those things like 
you keep brushing up against it. You feel the pain. And every time you're like, oh, I need to fix that later. Well, me and my co-founder, we pair a lot and we stay on each other. Like if we've said that too many times, we need to just stop and do it. So that concerns we use pretty heavily. I wasn't a big fan of them when they first came out. I don't think I quite understood how to organize them until uh, watching the uh, How to Write Code Well by DHH or something like that. I think it's what he called it uh, and got to see how they kind of structure things. So we've been using a lot of that. So most of our models are just basically a list of includes of concepts inside of that model. Most of those, again, are not genericized. They're actually specific to the model itself. So they're in a directory namespace by the model. So we do a lot of that sort of stuff too. Probably like one of the, my biggest rules that I try and teach people in Rails whenever they're new to it is I just write code the way that I want it to work. And I hope Rails implemented it that way. <laughs> 90% of the time they have and 10% of the time they have it and I have to figure out how to make it work that way. I think that's one of my favorite things nice. about Rails is like you could just, it's it's almost like what I imagine like GitHub Copilot voice dictation is going to feel like. You can just kind of like do what you want and the computer magically understands you. I think Rails has done a really good job of doing that for engineering. Yeah, I can't wait for the day where I could just use generators <laughs> and then, you know, just scaffold all of my features and then have the yeah. AI Auto, I mean, GitHub Copilot is getting pretty close now. It's pretty, pretty close. <laughs> I have a hard time coding without it now. <laughs> so I want to revisit one thing that like we mentioned earlier or whatever, which was that you, it sounds like your deployment now, instead of, you know, kind of instead of managing it, you're using uh, render. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just kind of curious, like, okay, so to me, my understanding is that render is a slightly more, okay, I mean, all right, I'm going to broad paintbrush stroke, so so please don't crucify me on this. But like, it's a slightly more rigid version of like what Heroku was so back in the day, sort of. And so I'm just kind of curious, like how you guys see it, how you're using it, you know, and like maybe how it compares. Yeah. So just for context, my background is almost entirely in DevOps. Um, I accidentally stumbled in that back in the small business bookkeeping days. The CTO there is like, hey, we need to move off of our racked servers onto AWS. Who wants to help? And I stupidly volunteered. So I've been in DevOps ever since then doing AWS with Chef. Like I said, I've done Lambda. We did ops code, with Dockerized containers, all of the different ways you could deploy an application. That's that's kind of my background. So I tend to nerd out on that stuff. Um, we ran everything on AWS at GreenBits. And then I, I helped sort of consulting at a couple of other startups since then where they were running on Heroku or running on AWS like servers. And I moved them to Dockerized AWS and it seemed better, except there were always just kind of like pain points. There's always operations to do when you're doing that. And so this time around, I was like, why don't we just launch in Heroku? It just happened to be right when Heroku's like getting rid of the free plan and Render was like gaining a lot of steam and and all of that stuff. So I was like, well, why don't I try render? It's still new. Like there's still there's still a learning curve to it. I like it slightly better than Heroku just because you can choose your resources a bit easier and you don't have to go through this marketplace to get, you know, Redis, for example. I always thought that was kind of weird that Redis or Memcache, you had to do this third party thing. So it's a little more native that way. But really while we're using it and what I enjoy about it is we don't have operations anymore. It just runs and it's effectively as easy as pushing to GitHub to make sure that it does run. And getting back to the the whole idea of focusing a lot more on solving the customer problems, getting rid of operations, especially on a team of the size of two, it's very important. Awesome. Do you, I mean, okay, so also being a bit of a, a DevOps person like myself, right? Um, 
I feel like there is a point at which Heroku-like things start to make less sense. Do you feel like, I mean, obviously you're you're not there yet, it sounds like, mm-hmm. yeah. but um, do you feel like you're you're looking at that like, yes, we, we are going to probably switch off one day, but this is great at our size kind of thing, which is, yeah, yeah, I think I just, is perfectly fine. Yeah, I definitely agree. At some point, the cost won't make sense. Okay. I'm not 100% sure what that point is. I think it's pretty far down the road, but at some point it won't make sense um, and it'll make sense to do operations. And uh, like, I don't, I'm honestly thinking about maybe even going like racked server approach when we reach that point. That's how far down the road I think it is. And some of the recent discussions DHH has been having has got me like rethinking some of that stuff. And I don't know. I think like it could, that could be the trajectory for us in the future is use render until it's financially makes zero sense and then move off onto hardware servers. Okay. And then the other like sort of related question is, Okay, so now you're using render. Do you? Uh, it kind of sounds like you like it. Do you feel like it's a reasonably good replacement then for Heroku? Yeah, I definitely think so. Yeah. It's got more setup to it than Heroku did, but you can also configure more than Heroku could. So like, there was a bit of a learning curve just figuring out their their like render YAML file and things to get the the whole sure. environment set up. But once you get that set up, it's pretty much set it and forget it. It is a really convenient feature that they have. Uh, they have preview environments for pull requests um, that we were using for a while. They just automatically spin up a new environment for each pull request, which is incredible because we were trying to build that out manually at GreenBits and it was a nightmare. So that's a pretty cool feature. Um, it's also an easy way to double your costs. So you got to keep an eye out for that. But yeah, yeah no, I've, I've had really no problems with it uh, since we've been running it. Nice, nice. And the only, okay, so the only other thing that like I would want to ask here, I think uh, maybe because you seem to have broad experiences, did you ever play with like Cloud66? Because that one specifically operates in like that weird spot where they're like managing your servers for you, but they're trying to pretend to be like a little bit like Heroku or whatever, but it's not quite that good. If you haven't, then that's cool too. I just, was I, I have not, I've not, not even heard of them actually. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I, I mean, I okay. use them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, what do you think? Hans? You know, I don't think I ever asked you. I don't bring uh, it up much because I feel like it's not it, like people don't really talk about it. And so I don't really bring it up much. Yeah. How did you feel about it? It's nice. I, it it has that Heroku feel to it. I mean, the only downside is you're paying for your infrastructure on top of their service. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're an additional cost. Uh, yeah. Right. So, I mean, if you, if you want the flexibility, but also don't care about the cost structure just yet, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but I, I feel like it's like a, uh, it's hard because it's like, from a payment perspective, if you are have any plans to get off of that, like provider infrastructure, like if you want to, say, swap from using AWS to Linode or whatever, for whatever reason, that is not necessarily easy to do with it. <laughs> it's possible, but yeah, it's, I agree. Yeah, it's possible. It just adds that extra layer. It does separate it. So if like you did have plans to like play with things in the early on days, it could be easier to give you that flexibility to kind of play with, you know, the numbers as as you go. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't, there's a lot about that doesn't make sense <laughs> in the early days. And I mean, if you're, if you're just trying not to pay for the, you know, operational costs, but still want that feel without kind of upcharging to render or something, but you have, you know, you're, you can even use your own servers at that point. It's nice to, to give you that <laughs> Heroku add-on. Uh, but I've been using doku recently and i i you know it's free and it 
pretty much does the same thing, but without the user interface. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I neither like hate nor love Cloud sixty six. I feel like I, I'm, yeah, I'm in the same space too. Where it's like, I mean, what they're providing you is, hey, they're going to manage your servers for you in a sort of automated fashion. There are limits to that, but they're they. I mean, it stretches pretty far. They do a lot of stuff for you, and so if you're not into that space, like it might be something you use, and you basically pay for that their service. And then you like use DigitalOcean or AWS or something like that. And you can get, you can basically, I feel like the the only sweet spots that I know for like Cloud 66, and I'm not even really sure they're sweet as in like they're the only person that exists there. But like the only place that I feel like it makes sense is like if Heroku is expensive for you, but you don't want to have like anyone doing operations, right? Like, which, so you're probably like a medium, small, medium-sized company at that point, right? Like that kind of thing, right? So I feel like maybe in that spot, something like that. So that's that's where I feel like they they fit. I don't know. Yeah, and to the cost point, I've had quite a few discussions with uh, with startup founders debating me on on the cost of of like a render Heroku versus their AWS. And people don't know how to cost AWS is what it really comes down to. Excellent. They look at their servers and add Some those people. up. <laughs> yeah, they look at their servers, they add those up and they're like, oh, it's a lot cheaper. I'm like, but did you count the VPC? Have you counted the NAT gateway? Have you can- counted the bandwidth costs? Like the NAT gateway, especially, especially if you're a small startup using really small servers, the NAT gateway is the most expensive part, which is just stupid. It's really like, easy to like okay. blow things up in AWS. Like most, most of my time at Greenbits and AWS was on cost optimization. Like instead of operations, like you traditionally think of the word, operations have become cost optimizations. For me, the thing that I feel like people leave out of the equation all the time is like man hours, basically. That too, yeah. Like just not counting how much time you're spending working on it right. especially because yeah. you know it's often, it's salaried people so it's free right and oftentimes the people that you're asking are the people that are incentivized to spend more time on it mm, yeah yep true true right you're asking the devops guy who like how we could save money and the easiest way to save money would be stop having a devops guy <laughs> not trying to fire all the devops guys but uh, no. i mean i, I, I also like made people, right? to like reduce <laughs> reduce devops hours like so <laughs> Like, and there's mo- so many organizations too that are are fairly locked into their current cloud. So yeah, like they're they're kind of stuck and they have to keep going in this world. But if you're starting something new, definitely look at some of these some of these alternative options. Yes, I agree. Definitely a big fan of not hiring a team of like a hundred people just to push buttons and then call that automation. Like that seems so wrong to me. Yeah, the more people you have on your team, the harder it is to do anything. Awesome. Okay. Thanks for answering my question Yeah, about Render. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on build packs versus whatever the other one is. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with the, the DevOps infrastructure for building all the containers and related services like Heroku does is mm-hmm. like with build packs. Yeah, so you know, yeah, Heroku's got build packs and you effectively have to use Docker files on Render. Right. Is okay. that what you're referring to? Yeah, that's what I was referring to. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have a custom Docker file on Render yet because their native Rails one does almost everything we need. It's got one version too old of VIPs for us, so we can't support HEIC images, which is real pain, but it's not back to like our previous conversations. It hasn't annoyed me enough for me to change it because it's a pretty big change to support those files. So we don't, we don't have to do anything custom there yet. I do enjoy that it's not like this sort of special system that they have, and it's just a Docker file. Again, though, because they're early, I think they could do a lot better in terms of documentation 
their like base Rails Docker image, I guess, is tied into their infrastructure pretty tightly, so they don't publicize those. So you don't even have something to start from. And if you don't have a lot of experience in Docker, which you might not because you're using Render, I think it could be pretty a pretty big hurdle to overcome if you need anything custom whatsoever. But like I said, so far, the native Rails one that they have has worked for pretty much everything we needed to do. Okay, now I suddenly have more questions. <laughs> no, no, because I think this is like really interesting. Like as somebody that hasn't like tried to use render, right? Like I, I didn't run into this, so I had no idea. But I think, I mean, I think it's, I mean, I, I out of the gate, I agree with you. I think that like having like build packs, like, I mean, you have to have special knowledge, knowledge to like build custom build packs if you needed them, right? So like that was, that was definitely a hurdle that you had to deal with at Heroku and you know, from a business perspective, hiring somebody with that knowledge, or, you know, giving somebody the time to like acquire that knowledge, like, those are riskier decisions, you know, uh, versus like, you know, Docker knowledge is, you know, not everybody knows Docker, but it's a, definitely a lot more ubiquitous, I feel yeah. like so um, like, that makes total sense. And I think that's great, a great direction. But like, I think it's really, I think, I mean, as far as like, you know, my ability to like, recommend that people go use render, right? I think that like, oh, well, you know, the fact that you, you're like, hey, the documentation actually really sucks for um, the Docker container. I think that's definitely a point to bring out. But to clarify on that, like what, uh, maybe like what, what's the problem here? Do, is it, is it because, is it because I like need to know what render is going to hook into? And so I have to make sure that like when I build my Docker file, whatever I do to it, like I have to be like, okay, this is the, you know, the run command that, that. Not render's going to kick off or something. Yeah, not that I'm aware of. No, it doesn't tie into it that way. Um, I, they just say that. I don't actually know how it could tie into it because you can all, you can launch a regular Docker file and it works just fine. So okay, I feel like they just don't want to open source it yet. I'm not sure. Really, like I would just like to have some. Like I would love to have a copy of that Rails one because all I need to do is add like four characters to update VIPs. Right. Got it. And I don't really want to go through the effort. And developing a Docker file tends to be kind of slow. And then also to develop a Docker file that then compiles to a very small image, which is important for speed of deployments, is even slower. So it's like it's a lot of work that I shouldn't have to do because it already exists. They just haven't, you know, publicized it yet. Okay. Okay. So part of the reason I haven't done it is just kind of annoyance that it, it's not publicized. <laughs> I mean, you know what the URL is, right? Like, can't you theoretically like just grab it and yeah? I mean, no, I, I getting it small again. Yet. Well, what's up? <laughs> I haven't found a way to find their image yet, no. Oh, you, you can't even access it. Okay, no. yeah. But yeah, and, and their Fun. documentation is, I would say, is fine for a Docker file. They tell you how to do it. They just don't like give you anything to start with. So like, I have a lot of experience in Docker, so it probably wouldn't take me too long to get up to speed in launching one. Yeah. But someone that's using Render because they wanted to launch a Rails app without any operational experience... It's going to take them a long time. They have to figure out how to install Docker, which isn't always the easiest, how to run it, what a Docker file even is, and all the different syntax in there. So, like, it'd just be great if there was something you could copy, download, <laughs> tweak this, and then be off of the races, not really even still have to understand Docker. True. Yeah. I mean, I know I would love to have like a Docker configurator. <laughs> yeah. Like specific to specific to the framework too, really. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to try out a new Rails app with like the latest Ruby, right? Or maybe try out the new JIT or something. I don't want to have to go and look up what that image is every time. Or, you know, I don't know. I feel like there's just like yeah. easier ways than like <laughs> go find the image that somebody else built, right? Yeah, like, and it's it's funny damn. too because Docker has this library of images that pretty much anyone can push to, right? 
But the problem with that is there's so many options now and it's hard to understand the difference in all of them that mm-hmm. it's just it's just a nightmare to work through really. And then you have like Ruby, but then you have different OSs like Ruby Slim, Ruby Alpine. Sometimes Alpine doesn't work with the different libraries you have, but no one even knows what Alpine is unless you're like building Docker <laughs> images. And it's just, it's a lot of like, this is sort of the like, the software engineering versus the customer problem stuff we were talking about before. There's a lot of software engineering stuff in there where they should really be thinking about the customer problem. Like I want to run rails in a really small image and I want to install extra libraries. Can I just do that easily? I mean, there's, there's definitely like a few things out there that I like, I kind of think are trying to create sort of like that convention. Right. Right. And I like, Coming from the Rails space, I think like we mostly buy into like uh, the three of us. I feel like, like I'm not I'm preaching to the choir here, right? Like we're like, oh yeah, we get it. You know, convention has benefits, right? And um, I'm willing to give up a little bit of my configuration for that. Besides, like we're also in Rails, where like yes, we get convention, but like it's super configurable, right? So um, like we get to have our cake and eat it too all the time. And uh, I feel like. Like there are some things that are starting to come out in that space that I feel like are kind of trying to solve this problem. So maybe in a year or two, like we won't, we won't have this problem anymore. But I thought, I thought what you said was interesting, Valentino. And I'm like, oh, I kind of like want to try it. Like making like a, like a Docker configurator, like a GUI thing and be like, all right, I just like want to drag and drop this thing in and this thing in. Right. Like that. I mean, I'm like, Okay, so I've had like a lot of problems. You know, I've I've worked through a lot of problems with Docker over the years and I'm like, oh man, this would be like such a pain in the ass. But like at the same time, like I feel like a tool like that would be super welcome. It just seems like a lot of work, but it yeah. seems like it would be very cool. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, if I do end up building a Docker file for our own thing, I'll probably open source it as like a render Rails thing just to make myself feel better that someone could get it if they wanted. But then I'm just adding to that that mix of stuff. But yeah. A Docker file configurator would be really cool, but yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I don't Somebody, want to build it. I would be interested in helping. I don't, I don't know that I, I don't, I don't know that I'm committed to the cause enough to like to go do it. But I feel like this was the conversation for the Rails new interactive, <laughs> right? Where like there were like 50 different like Rails configuration tools. <laughs> Right. Yeah. At one yeah. point where like you can go in Rails new uh, with a GUI or like from the console, like the terminal <laughs> and like they all have their own different like things. And then finally, so like, you know, during the May of WTFs, right, somebody was like, why don't we have just like an interactive command on this Rails new? Like, and now like now, like, thankfully, somebody built that. Right. Like, <laughs> You know, OK, honestly, this this is what Docker should be selling us. Like, instead of, instead of like, okay, yeah, yeah, so I'll, I'll get off my soapbox in a second. Instead of like going backwards in time and saying, you owe us all money because you've been using our free service, they should make this Docker configuration. I would pay for it. Just saying. And that can be what you sell us. Like, whatever. Anyway, yeah. soapbox done. So I'm curious, Trey, what, what do you start to look for, you know, as your app starts growing from an infrastructure standpoint? Like, when do you really start caring about costs over like, how things are working? It's a good question. I mean, for me, like the num- the number one thing is the customer experience has to be the best. Right? If we sacrifice that, then we're sacrificing everything. I do think it's kind of it's kind of important to figure out how to measure um, infrastructure cost per user. That's always been something challenging at a lot of places. So I'm think- trying to think about that early on in this project because if we can, over the last few years, I've spent a lot of time learning more about business and especially about marketing. 
So I've gotten a lot into that. And there's a lot of great marketing metrics, you know, cost to acquire a customer and lifetime value. And I think if we can figure out how to get our infrastructure costs blended into cost to acquire a customer, then as long as LTV is over that some number, then it's fine. It doesn't really matter. There's some ratio that we're going to try and maintain. And if it goes too far the wrong direction, we'll see if we can optimize on marketing and we'll see if we can optimize on engineering. And then from there, it's like at some point, probably, but maybe I'll be wrong. Something like Render or Heroku, we won't be able to optimize it any further to get that number down. We'll have to move to something else. But especially right now and probably the next at least three years, the focus is solely on spend money to make the customers love the product. Yeah, I mean, early on, early on, it completely makes sense. And yeah, it's I, I don't know when the, the line crosses over, right? Like, I don't know if I but my guess is oftentimes, if you're thinking you should cut costs at, and sacrifice the customer experience a little bit to cut costs, you could probably just raise your price and solve the problem that way. Yep. Or you're operating in a business that's like cutthroat and, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's that's not my cup of tea. So I'm curious, then, do you like, do you prefer paying into third party services that already offer something that you could use, like, say, metrics for back end or something like that? Like, would you rather buy into render or uh, build your own like log suite? Like, at what point do you to start to like, just throw money at it versus let me build this specific thing? I'm almost entirely buy over build, but it's got to solve the problem the way I want it solved. So like we, we use paper trail for logging because that's easy and just kind of a no better way to do it, really. We use Stripe for payment processing. I'll pretty much buy buy any service that can speed our development. Like some maybe some examples of things that I've built instead. So like our internal metrics, I mean, we've launched, we're using, uh, I think it's called Smashing now. It used to be called Dashing. It's a Ruby Sinatra-based dashboard app. Just because I haven't found anything that'll track all the metrics that I, I want and is not absolutely insanely priced. So a lot of those metrics type companies are built for people that have a lot more revenue. Well, definitely more revenue than zero. So in those cases, I'll, I'll end up building, um, but trying to keep it like really like spike level, small projects and trying to leverage some open source libraries like Smashing to do it. Yeah, it's interesting. I always have a, a problem of <laughs> just wanting to build everything to try it out. <laughs> yeah, which, which a, makes a challenge. It's probably a reason that I haven't started up my own thing, really, as <laughs> uh, I just like to build things, uh, <laughs> yeah, know, whether they're useful or not. <laughs> yeah, and it's one of those things, too, like if if you have a belief that the customer experience can be significantly better by building it in-house, then you should build it in-house, regardless of the cost. But oftentimes, logging is not going to matter in any way, the customer experience. We switched email providers to AWS SES because it's significantly cheaper than uh, SendGrid, but we lost all of our statistics. So we ended up building building out like statistics monitoring for our email deliverabilities because it's really important to know that our emails are getting delivered even from our Rails app. So that's one case where we, we did build over buy. Um, that's just because it's actually insane how much cheaper SES is over SendGrid. So quick question on this particular thing, because my recollection is that SES has some like, what is it, like rules that you have to like meet or certain things. And I feel like those things like crop up even for like the normal person or whatever that like can give you grief that that I haven't really encountered again in, in Syngrid. Yeah, they have a lot of posted rules. I haven't seen many rules like 
enforced, though I don't know if I've necessarily broken a lot of the rules. So we, sure. so at this at this company, we only use SES for transactional mail from our Rails app. And transactional mail, there's not really yeah, any requirements to be able to unsubscribe and things like that. And because it's all people signed in with verified emails, that we get very few bounces. So those are two things that they care a lot about. So if you're doing things yeah. like marketing emails or getting a lot of bounces, you have to monitor that a lot more carefully and be very careful in any email platform, honestly, because I've learned that whenever you tank your domain sending credibility, it's so hard to get back. We did a cold emailing campaign that taught me that. That's why we own getcomfortly.com too. <laughs> um, so we only nice. do transactional mail through there and then we use HubSpot for all of our marketing stuff. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, good, good point. Like, you don't so, have to worry so about sort of the advantage about. of me learning a lot about marketing over the last little while, my other co-founder and business partner and a lot of the real estate stuff too, he does all the marketing stuff. So I've learned a lot about marketing. It's taught me the advantage of tools like HubSpot. I always thought they were just kind of like overkill and, and stupid and like why build a landing page in there versus just building it in rails. Now I actually understand it. So our app does a lot of syncing with HubSpot so that he can send a lot of email campaigns that I would never want to spend engineering time coding. Sweet. I'm, I'm also, yeah. I'm, I'm in really interested in all these services that you use. <laughs> and, and kind of like maybe some ones uh, where you, you had used in the past that you've discovered something new that just worked way better. Like yeah. what, what, are, what are your like go-to services when you start up a new company as an example? Yeah, I mean, as much as I wanted to avoid HubSpot, HubSpot, um, there's a lot of negotiation and lots of coupons and things you can find out on the internet to make that better. It's because it's very expensive once you start getting into some of the better tools there. But they have good entry level tools. Um, that's been a that's been a pretty big one for us. We we actually have it now. So the, our you don't even sign up through our Rails app. You sign up through HubSpot, and then HubSpot sends us a webhook which signs you up. That's how integrated we are with HubSpot now. Just because the complicated sort of like activation, onboarding, and email campaigns that we can send through HubSpot without having to code is really powerful. We also do all of our customer service through HubSpot, all of our like phone calls through HubSpot. So like, you could really do everything that's not engineering almost in HubSpot. So that's a really big one for us. But like I said, it gets very expensive. So we use that. AWS, we're only using for emails and storage. So S3. Paper trail for logs, render for hosting, Google for email. Otherwise, I don't think we're really using many other services. Have you ever used something like user voice or, or something like that to provide like in-app customer feedback? No, but we or, are or using intercom. Um, we're using Hotjar. So we're using Hotjar. We originally added it on the marketing page, but we just added it in the app where you can do sort of click tracking, which has been really fascinating to watch people go through and try to figure out where they're falling off in the onboarding. And for like intercom type stuff, we're using HubSpot. They have service. So it's got chat built into the application. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm like super in I appreciate like all the tips, even even in like things where like, I don't need this particular thing. It's just like, okay, now like I like, I don't know, I've always been a full stack person. And so like mm -hmm. understanding parts of the stack, even that I don't have right now, I feel like is very helpful. Learning the marketing side of things has been a really interesting journey for me. I knew like lightly about it before, but now I know it really in depth. And it's really fascinating. I get marketing fits an engineering mindset really well. Because it's very like metrics driven and problem solving. It, it's it's very interesting. And I still think there's there's more tools to be built in the marketing side of things. And then AI is getting fascinatingly interesting, both on the engineering side, but especially on the marketing side. You know, we're starting to write blog posts with AI now. I'm curious how you do that. <laughs> 
Yeah. Let's see. So I, I listened to this podcast called My First Million. And a few months back, one of the guys on there started going down this AI rabbit hole. And, you know, I've heard of open AI and stuff like that before, but it kind of got me looking at it again. And it really just blew my mind. If you've not been to the open AI playground, you should go. The text-based thing is fascinating. Like you could, uh, I had it, I went in there and I was like, write me 10 tweet ideas for personal finance related things. And it just creates it. It's kind of mind boggling. But so that kind of led me down that rabbit hole. And I started learning about all these other AI tools, specifically in the marketing realm. Um, We're using copy AI is what we're using for it. Basically what you do is you go in there, you give it basically a prompt and it will write sort of, it works you through a process, but it'll write a blog post effectively. So first thing it does is come with the outline. And then you can have it fill in the sections of the outline. Sometimes we only use it for the outline, which is already really valuable because it did a lot of research and kind of points us in the right direction. Sometimes we'll use it for the whole thing. And then you just have to kind of go through and proofread and edit and tweak things. But it is kind of mind boggling. And then, you know, it's if you've tried GitHub Copilot, it's the same sort of feeling, except with English written words. You know, when you first start using Copilot and you type a method definition, and it like auto completes the whole thing even better than you were going to write it. You're like, how? But thank you. Nice. So you would recommend Copilot. I, you've mentioned it at least five times. <laughs> that That's probably been like maybe the one of the most game-changing technologies I've experienced this year. Interesting. Um, I had very, very little hope for it. I thought it was just going to... I've never been a huge fan of autocomplete in general. I just always find it kind of annoying. So I kind of didn't expect yes. it to do a whole lot. But then me and my me and my co-founder started using it regularly for like a week. It is really good. And where it's really strong is writing tests. So if you write all the code and then you go and write the tests, some of our RSpec tests are basically we tab complete the entire file. All right. All right. I am also on the like, I hate tab completion typically. And so like, I was like, oh, why would I want a, just a better tab completer? All right. I, I'm actually convinced to add it to my list of things to try. Yeah, there there have been things. Let's see if I can find an example real quick. There have been things that it's so good that you like screenshot it and you send it to your engineering friends. You're like, I can't believe a computer wrote this. I think the test thing, like, I mean, like I was already like kind of like tilting as you were just like, yeah, you know, like I'm I'm somebody that like doesn't like tab completion, but like I tried it and I like it. And then you're like, and then it like writes my test for me. And I'm like, wait, hold on a second. I don't like testing land. Like, yes, incredible. Yeah, especially so my co-founder is really good at having like a good structure to tests and it learns from your other files, right? So when I go in to write a system spec, like it it nearly tab completes the whole thing to the structure that he prefers. So like, I don't even have to work that hard at it. It's really been, it's really been surprising how Um, good it is. All right, and I'm almost sold. Yeah, and then there's lots of uh, lots of code examples where it's just like how I again I'm not like the computer science software engineer guy, so like I don't even know how it works. Couldn't even fathom how it works, but somehow magically it does. So I've I've gotten to the point where I've turned off all the VS Code's auto completion except for Copilot, just to make Copilot work faster. <laughs> I just have tab completion turned off because I hate the lag. <laughs> it, it, it is. I was like, why is it not tab completing these things? It should be. And it's because IntelliSense pops up first. So I spent like an hour turn, figuring out how to turn off IntelliSense on VS Code because <laughs> Copilot's just better. Oh my gosh. Oh, nice. Okay. All right. Cool. Did you have anything else? I feel like we should sort of be like wrapping up. So do you have anything else that you wanted to, to tell us about, Trey and Valentino? Do you have any other questions? 
yeah no this was great thanks for having me back it's always a good time awesome welcome back thanks for telling us about your your journey and your opinions yeah. on all these products which wasn't exactly how i thought this was gonna go but <laughs> but thanks anyway yeah totally anytime <laughs> cool all right well let's go ahead and move into picks then and then and then we'll wrap up so uh valentino did you have any picks for us sure so i i made this pick before but i got this little pixel matrix called the galactic unicorn it's really awesome i went through a, a bunch of examples uh recently and i have it now there's something called cheer lights uh which you can uh go and set the color for these global infrastructure of lights so you can hook up any iot light to it and it'll just like change from when people change the color on the web <laughs> it's pretty cool it's so I, I, it has Every pixel is basically the historic, historical context of the cheer lights. So as people change the lights on the web, I have like every pixel updating. It's kind of fun. <laughs> so I'm, I'm digging more into that. Is that your one for the week or whatever? That's it. Okay. All right. So I have a couple picks. So I'm actually here at RubyConf this week. So I'm going to go ahead and pick that. And because we'll, it's pretty, I mean, for me, like, it's actually like really, you know, my, my life goes up and down and things like this. And like, you know, going to Ruby and RailsConf like are like energizing for me. So for me, like I'm happy to pay the cost because like it's like it's an energy boost for me every year. So, you know, that's 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 my thing or whatever. But while I'm picking RubyConf, there's also like another one that's kind of going on as well. The Ruby mini comp. And I don't know if that's going to keep going or not. But um, if it does, like I'm picking that as well. And then also, I just got a new phone because I've had my Pixel 2 for a really long time now. And uh, I mean, I pushed it and I'm very happy that I pushed it and, and I'm happy that like I saved my money, but I'm happy to get a new Pixel 7 and I'm very pleased with it so far. So those are my picks for today. Trey, did you have anything for us? Yeah, let's see. I'll pick, uh, pick a book. I've read a lot of books this year. Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Maybe one of the most impactful books I read this year. Um, I think you could retitle it like How to Communicate with Your Wife. Good, It's but a good book. I, I guess he had to go more vague on the title. It's a really good book. Really good for anyone interacting with humans. It's helped me a lot have more productive conversations that would have probably spiraled more negatively. Nice. Awesome. All right. Well, if people want to like get in touch with you or, you know, like find out more about you, Trey, like where, where would they do that? Best places on Twitter, just at Trobrock, T-R-O-B-R-O-C-K, or Trobrock.com. Luckily, my name's unique, so you can find Trobrock on anything. So that there, um, if you own any real estate and looking for real estate software, the new project I'm working on is called Comfortly, just comfort.ly. Yeah. Cool. Sounds good. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you next time. Yeah, thanks. Take care. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.